0: An open letter to God's people living in a strange land. With the coming of the digital age and the internet and social media, one of the ways that messages these days get widely distributed and disseminated in our age is by means of an open letter. Have you ever seen these? What happens is that that letter gets addressed to someone else, just like a personal letter would, but instead of sending it to that person privately, putting it in an envelope and putting a stamp on it, or even by private email, that letter gets posted onto some kind of forum or some kind of medium, a website, a newspaper, a blog, um, some kind of a social medium, a place where this letter can be viewed by the general public. The letter writer wants everyone to know that what they are writing to that other person, they want want everybody to see it. It's usually something pointed. It's usually something where a person wants an action or a response. And the idea is that they send an open letter. If they send it that way, it adds a layer of accountability. It now demands some kind of response because everyone has seen what that person is receiving. Just a simple search the other day produced these open letters just on the first couple of pages. And I'm just not going to read the whole open letter, but just the, the recipients. There was an open letter to Donald Trump. Actually, there was many of those. There was an open letter to the Prime Minister of Canada, a few of those as well. There was an open letter to Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard is a basketball player that plays for the Toronto Raptors that everyone's thinking is going to uh, sign somewhere else next year, and so people are convincing him to try and stay. In fact, today may be his last game as a Raptor. So someone wrote an open letter to Kawhi. Some gal I saw wrote an open letter to her boyfriend. I didn't open that one. I think some of those things would be left private, but this... uh, gal obviously wanted to send a message. And of course, with this being Mother's Day, there were a number of letters that were called an open letter to my mom, expressing public appreciation rather than just private appreciation for their mother, a very nice gesture. But in case you needed to be convinced that this open letter thing is popular, I present to you an open letter to open letters. Here's what it says. So this is somebody writing an open letter to the idea of an open letter. If we're being honest here, I was never really into you. I'm still struggling to understand how this craze and fascination everyone seems to have for you has carried on for this long. Here, let me explain. At first, I sort of got it. I remember scrolling down on my Facebook wall and seeing some open letter from a parent to a child, and I clicked on it. It was sweet, it was vulnerable, a powerful imagery of love that that I could see resonated with many. After a little while though, you started making a regular appearance on my wall. You had become a quick format for people to complain, rant, or flaunt some relationship or opinion that I didn't ask to hear. It seems to me that you're really just verbal vomit on a page. (laughs) I want more than this from you. I want my brain engaged. Besides, anyone can verbally vomit and anyone can engage people's emotions, it's not that difficult. With all this said, I do not want to put the blame on you, dear open letter, for how people have mistreated you. You have potential, you really do. And so I'd like to take this opportunity to instead thank you for one aspect of yourself that I admire. You have gotten people writing letters. (laughs) A lost art, right? So there you have it, an open letter to open letters. That's how they work. Well, most of the letters in the Bible might, on the one hand, be considered closed letters. They were written either to particular people, usually from Paul to people like Titus or Timothy or Philemon, that's what the letters are named after, after the recipient, after the single person, or they were written to particular churches in cities. And the letters were named after those cities, like Romans or Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, um, Thessalonians, all named after cities to whom they were written, or at least the churches that were in those cities. A couple were intended to have a bit of a wider reach. Galatia was the name of a province to whom Galatians was written. And 1 Peter was written to people that were in a larger area, says there, in Pontus, Galatia, so included that province as well, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which probably makes up a bigger area of about 300,000 miles in what is now most of modern-day Turkey. So in one sense, all the New Testament letters were originally sent to a specific group of people or a person in one area. But in another sense... All of the New Testament letters are open letters. Maybe not by the intention of the human author, but they became open letters by the intention of the divine author, by God himself. God so inspired these letters as the authors were writing that he transformed them into open letters. Letters that would be read by the general public, letters that call for a response, and we know that Because we are still reading these letters today. And so this morning we want to begin a series looking into one open letter in the Bible. And that's the letter that I just referred to called 1 Peter. Here, the name of the book is named after the person that wrote it. Peter. This is Peter's first letter of two that are in the scriptures. Peter wrote a letter here to certain Christians to address a particular situation in those places. But in many ways, our circumstances today are much the same as their circumstances back then. And in his infinite wisdom, God knew that. God knew that we would need a letter like this. And so Peter's letter to these people is God's open letter to us here today. And we're just going to introduce this letter today by taking a closer look at Peter's opening words and by seeing why it's so, important, it's so important that we read these words regularly and that we act on these words as Christians living today here in Alberta in 2019. So turn to the book of 1 Peter, and we're just going to read today the first two verses. Just the first two verses. Again, if you're using those Bibles that are on the chair racks in front of you, this is on page 1014. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the inspired and inerrant and profitable and authoritative word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Peter starts this letter by identifying himself. And he identifies himself as Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so I want to start there with this man called Peter. And I say he was called Peter because that was not his original name. His name was actually Simon. A few times in the Gospels when the disciples are named the name's the list of the disciples, the list in fact, every time it's, that list is named, it always starts off with Simon the one who was called Peter. And it was Jesus who called him Peter. Mark 3.16, it says, He, that is Jesus, appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave gave the name Peter, and then it goes on to list the other ones. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Peter means rock. And Jesus named him that. He called him Peter. You are Peter. Even though he was originally, by his mother, called Simon. But I want us to start this introduction by asking what it was that shaped Peter to the point where he wrote this letter called 1 Peter. He was first and foremost, like we just saw, shaped by our Lord Jesus Christ. He says he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, in other words, sent out by Jesus. That's what that word apostle means. Sent out one. Out of the four Gospels, the Gospel of Mark is the one that pictures Jesus more than any other one through Peter's eyes. It's very likely that Peter told Mark, John Mark, what to write down about Jesus' life. So the Gospel of Mark, when you read it, is really... Jesus through Peter's words, the life of Jesus in the words of Peter. And so I just want to show you some of the things from Mark that Peter thought were important in his interactions with Jesus, things that shaped Peter and things that actually qualified him to write about Jesus in the letter of 1 Peter, which was probably written at least 30 to 35 years after Jesus died on the cross, was was resurrected and ascended to the Father 50 days later. In Mark 1, we read about how Jesus transformed Peter, how he called Peter and his brother Andrew, how he transformed them from being fishermen to fishers of men. It's in that Mark 1, he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. But I love how Jesus describes their task in Mark 3, those verses that I just read a little bit from earlier. Mark 3, verse 13. says there that Jesus went up on a mountain... And called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Why? So that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, starting with Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Let' well, just notice a couple of things there that would have affected Peter in his life and in his ministry after Jesus would have left. He knew, he remembered that Jesus appointed them, first of all, just so that they would be with him, so that they would be with him. Peter spent three years with Jesus. Talk about being shaped by something. He was there with Jesus for three years. Jesus wanted Peter to be with him. He taught Peter, he discipled Peter. And Peter watched Jesus. Peter listened to Jesus. Those were an amazing three years, a three-year window in Peter's life that totally transformed his outlook. Jesus calls us to follow him and to be with him. As present-day disciples of Jesus, if we are believers, he calls us to be with him, not physically like Peter, but we can follow Jesus and be with Jesus through his word, through his people. But notice, too, that being with him was not the end goal that Jesus had in mind. It wasn't only that Jesus wanted some company and some friends while he traveled around Israel. He appointed them so that they might be with him and so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In other words, to transform other other people from following The prince and power of the air, following the devil, to following God. These disciples, of which Peter became the leading voice, would be tasked with the responsibility and the authority to take the message of Jesus and carry it forward. They would be responsible for taking the message of Jesus and to keep it going. And they did a good job, because we have it today as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course, and as God's word was preserved through them for us. And it's this, the call to preach, that shaped Peter all those years later. Just think about this. The fact that Peter knew Jesus and was with Jesus might have been enough to have him qualify to get people's attention. You know, Peter could have just played the celebrity card. I knew Jesus. I was with him. I saw what he did. So listen to me. But when we go through the letter of 1 Peter, it's interesting that he doesn't testify a whole lot to his personal interactions with the Lord in order to convince people of his message. He just teaches truth. He just teaches doctrine. He preaches Jesus. Just as... Jesus had appointed him to do. He knows they need to understand the word of God about Jesus and it's this word of God about Jesus that will serve to transform them as Peter was transformed. That's why Jesus sent him out as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter didn't understand all of that or much of that even while Jesus was alive. Peter is very bold. Peter is very courageous. But his boldness and his courage is... A little bit misdirected. His zeal is a little bit off. But Jesus just keeps building into Peter. A little bit at a time. That's what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus. We don't arrive right away. It's a process. We keep growing and learning. That's what being a disciple is all about. Now go over to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. At the end of Mark 8... Very important section at the end of Mark 8. But in verse 30, Peter is front and center in in what is really an interesting back and forth with Jesus. In verse 30, Peter makes a bold confession. You are the Christ. Jesus had asked, who do people say that I am? And Peter steps forward and says, you are the Christ. He he had the right answer. It's a great confession. But right after that, in verse 31, Jesus starts preparing them for what would be in store for him. Mark 8 verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But that doesn't sit too well with Peter. Those words from Jesus, I think Peter kind of stopped his hearing at be killed didn't hear the last part that he's going to rise again and that there's going to be a ministry after that. And so Peter, just look at the next verse there. It says Peter took Jesus aside. Let me just stop right there. Like, like, this is a pretty bold move. <laughs> Peter took Jesus, whom he had just confessed to be the Christ, the Son of God. Peter took Jesus aside, but it gets even more bold than that. Peter took Jesus aside. And look what it says here. And began to rebuke him. <laughs> kind of look at that you go, what? He starts letting Jesus have it. For even suggesting that he would suffer and die. Now how would Jesus respond to being rebuked like that? How would the teacher respond to, be, to getting rebuked by the student? Well, how about calling him the devil? Verse 33. Turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Talk about being reprimanded. (laughs) That's quite something. You're satanic. See, you think Peter would have ever forgotten that moment. I doubt it. That would have shaped him. It was all part of Peter's development. And Jesus uses that to teach a lesson there at the end of chapter 8 on what's important, including that penetrating question, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul, forfeits his life? And what's interesting is that in the very next chapter, just a few verses later, we see that Jesus did not hold this against Peter. In chapter 8 it said, Peter took Jesus aside. Look at chapter 9 verse 2. Jesus uses that same verb when it says that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. That great scene when he hears the voice of God. Peter says and God says and or, Just this voice comes and says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter, James, and John were there to hear this. After Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, Jesus could have demoted Peter. Remember how he's always first in the list? He could have put him right down to number 12 after that. But Jesus takes Peter with him for a very special moment. It's almost like Peter fails and then is restored. Which prefigures another great restoration as well. And that would happen a few more times while Jesus is alive, most notably when Peter denies knowing Jesus. And that would set the scene for Peter being shaped for his future ministry and to write this letter of 1 Peter by the resurrected Jesus later on. So let's talk about what happened then. It's amazing what happens. And I'd love to tell you about it, but you're going to have to come back next Sunday. For that, because it happens in John chapter 21, which Lord willing, Pastor Andrew will tell us about next week. But just one hint one of the last things Jesus says to Peter is, Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. And that's exactly what Peter did for the rest of his life, which included writing the letter of 1 Peter. Well, let's go back to the first two verses of this letter. After Peter identifies himself, he identifies the intended recipients of this letter. So we know the from, it's from Peter, now it's going to come the to. It's like one of those Valentine's cards, right? From so-and-so to so-and-so. And here we have that as well in this letter. He's thinking of particular people, but God has made this an open letter such that all Christians are encompassed in this list, including us. The way Peter describes the targets of this letter gives us a hint at what's coming in the letter. And it'll help us see why we ought to pay attention to what Peter's going to write in this letter. And we can essentially see all of it in that first verse. He's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. In those places, he lists there. That's the translation that we have in our English Standard Version, which we use here. But here's the way the New International Version translates that. It translates it as, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered in those places. I think that gets a little closer to the meaning of it. Not be a direct translation, but the meaning comes out in that that paraphrase. Those words in the ESV, the dispersion, sound like a technical name for a certain group of people called the dispersion, the diaspora. There was a group called that, made up of Jews, that came to live outside Israel. But Peter's writing here to all Christians that were scattered into that area. So he's using this word in more of a spiritual sense, in terms of the scattered ones. Because Christians were being threatened and persecuted, they were moving into different places, out of Jerusalem and throughout the Roman Empire. And that's his point here. And so we're going to come back to that. But first, verse 2. Verse 2 basically describes someone who's converted. It's describing the elect in very rich and meaningful terms. Anyone who's a Christian is a Christian according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. It's really an amazing description on how God has acted to save us. And Peter's going to tease all these principles out as we get into the letter. But just notice there that it involves all three persons of the Trinity. Father, the Spirit, and the Son, we're all involved in your salvation. And so for us, for you who are Christian brothers and sisters living in this world, here's the point. The depth of these truths come across to us, or should come across to us, as tremendously encouraging and comforting as we live in this world. If you ever wonder what happened in the courts of heaven in order for you to be saved, this description tries to get at that in ways that we can understand. The foreknowledge of God the Father means that you were the object of God's saving love from eternity past, from all eternity. The sanctification of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit sets you apart from the world and to God when you were saved. And those acts of God and the Holy Spirit in saving you results in obedience to Jesus Christ, what Romans calls the obedience of faith, and sprinkling with his blood. The blood of Jesus is applied to you as you're converted. And because that blood is applied to you, you are accepted by God. Why? Because the penalty of sin has been paid in full by the accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I said, Peter's going to expand on these amazing things as he gets into this letter and why they can be such a comfort for us. But here's why Peter reminds us of that right off the top. He wants them to remember that they are the elect, that they're the ones who are eternally loved by God. He wants to remind them of that because they at this point, us at this point, are strangers in the world. are scattered God's people are exiles living in a strange land other translations have temporary residents or aliens or pilgrims brothers and sisters this is our present status this is who we are while we are in this world as soon as we are saved we should have started to feel estranged from the world And so we are. We have been saved out of this world. And so it follows that the world should seem strange to us. And that we should feel strange to the world. The way the world is trending, or at least the context in which we live here in North America, this is becoming more and more real, is it not? The world is becoming more and more strange for Christians who for those who try to follow Jesus, for those who have been set apart by the world, and we are becoming more and more strange to those who are in the world. We see it in the news. We see it in our culture. We see it in current trends. We see it in politics. We see it in our culture's value system. We see it in our moral standards, the moral standards of our world, which seem to be plummeting further and further downward and away from the standard of God's laws. In the teaching of God's word. If you have young children or if you're a teacher, you can see this in the education system. We can see it in entertainment and in media. I'm amazed and shocked at the kinds of things, words and images that are now pretty much unfiltered. It used to be that certain words were bleeped out and that images were severely restricted. That's no longer the case. Everything seems to be fair game even when you watch the news. But the good news is that in these strange times, God protects his own people while they are yet in the world. Just as he acted so amazingly to save us, he also acts to keep us and to hold us fast and to encourage us as God's elect, strangers in the world. That's why we have the letter of First Peter. And that's why we can look forward to reading this letter together as a church, as God's people. And so God, in sending out this open letter, is going to help us navigate the world as strangers in the world. When you go to a foreign country, you need help, right? Everything that's in that country is foreign. It's the language, the roads, the the food, the, the customs. When you go there, you might feel... At points, like a fish out of water. But you can read up on how to survive in that strange land. You might use a dictionary for the language. You can get a map for the roads. You can do some reading on what to eat and what not to eat. You're still a stranger. You look different, and it's obvious that you are not at home. But there are resources that can help you make it, that can make you, help you navigate your way through that foreign land. Well, that's what this letter is going to aim to do. We are God's elect. Yet we are living in a strange and increasingly confusing world. And we can feel that sense of isolation. That sense of longing at the same time to be home. Or at least I hope that's the case. If you're not feeling that, you might be a little bit too at home in this world. The world is trying to make you feel at home here. It's trying to desensitize you to those things. It's trying to normalize sin and immorality. Don't get caught in that trap. Do not be conformed, as Romans says, to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But if you are feeling increasing like, increasingly like a stranger, if this world feels increasingly alien to you, if you're feeling disoriented and, and maybe even dismayed, if you're maybe even facing persecution and suffering for your faith, if your faith is affecting your earthly relationships, as people are marginalizing you, even within your own families, then this letter is here to help you. My prayer is that 1 Peter will make for a helpful traveler's guide on how to live as a Christian in a strange land that will encourage you that it will remind you that even while you live as a stranger in this world, your hope can be already anchored in your true home in heaven. And it will equip you to obey God and to serve Jesus until he appears again or until he calls you home. May God help us to that end. Let's pray. Our God... You who are our Heavenly Father, you who keep us, we thank you for calling us out of this world. We thank you because we know that this was an act, an act of grace, an act of sovereign grace on your part through the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're going to find out just a little later in this letter, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope. We are grateful that not only have you loved us and saved us, you have also left us in this world. We know that in many ways we are strangers in this world. And while this world is all we know, we also see that we don't quite fit in this world. We feel that disconnect. And with that in mind, our Father, we pray that you would help us in whatever the world throws at us. Help us to stand firm in our faith in the midst of a, of a crooked and depraved generation. And thank you for equipping us to that end with your word. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. And now to him who is able to strengthen you to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.